This is Mornings with Simi on 980 CKNW. I like simple experiments and champagne. So I've combined two of my favorite things to see if time travel from the future to the past is possible. I'm throwing a party. A welcome reception for future time travelers. That is Stephen Hawking talking about his efforts to spur time travel by throwing a party for future time travelers to come back and visit. Great idea, right? Except when he did, nobody showed up. I mean, obviously, you still have a chance, right? If you discover time travel, isn't that how it works? You can still go to this party? Now, I can't remember all the rules from Back to the Future and how this works. But Dr. Paul Sutter is a research professor of astrophysics at Stony Brook University's Institute for Advanced Computational Science. He's written about Stephen Hawking's party and joins us now. Dr. Sutter, thanks for being here. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Now, this is a great idea, but theoretically, could it still be successful? Like, could people still show up to this party? So, no, because it happened in the past, and our past is locked. What has happened has happened, and so we know for a fact that nobody showed up to the party. It does not mean that time travel into the past is impossible, but it does mean that no one can will ever go to the party. I guess what happened is that if somebody does create time travel, they didn't know about Stephen Hawking's party. Maybe they didn't get the invitation. Yeah, that's one option is that someday our future descendants can figure out how to travel back into the past. But by that time, uh, Hawking's invitation is lost to the historical record. So what was Haw- what were Hawking's thoughts on time travel? How did, how did he think it worked? Yeah, we're actually very curious as physicists about time travel because, you know, by by common sense, by intuition, by our experiences in our lives, time travel into the past appears to be forbidden. You cannot change the past. It is forever locked, forever inaccessible. We can always only march forward in time. And yet there's nothing really in our laws of physics that outright forbids it. So we can't like point to an equation. We can't print something on a T-shirt that explains why time travel into the past is forbidden, only that it seems to be. And so whenever we encounter these kinds of situations in science where our natural intu- intuition is, is, contra- is, is running um, against the, what the equations are telling us, there's something to be learned here. Okay, like what? Uh, Well, there is something fundamental about time that we currently do not understand. It could be that time travel into the past is forbidden, but we don't know how to express that in physical laws. And finding out how to express that would be a major advancement. We would learn a lot. Or it could be the other side, that time travel into the past is allowed. It's only apparently contradicted. It only appears to be impossible, but really it is. We have yet to discover how that could be, and discovering that would be a major advancement. So no matter what, we get to learn something. Okay. I love talking about time travel because everybody has a slightly different, very, even if you're not a physicist, you've got thoughts on time travel, don't you think, Dr. Sutter? Uh-huh. 
Oh, absolutely. It, it's uh, popular in the popular imagination. People love talking about it. People love imagining it. And, and it's because it connects to one of our fundamental human experiences, which is we grow, we age, we look to the future, we anticipate what's to come, we worry about the future, we remember the past, and that's our only link to the past is artifacts, mementos, memories that we can't, can't revisit um, our past experiences. We can't change the, the mistakes we've made. Um, that is part of the defining feature of what it is to be a, a conscious being in our universe. Right. And so it's natural to wonder, could it be different? Is the universe different than what we perceive it to be? You just said something, though, that really struck a chord with me. Is, it, is that why we talk about it so much and we're so obsessed with time travel? Is it the idea that maybe we can go back and fix our mistakes? Yeah. I mean, who wouldn't want to um, learn, once you've learned from your mistakes, go back and tweak things a little? Maybe you have a, a better outcome in your life, a, a, a different, another chance at an opportunity that you lost, I think we all hold on to that romantic notion. And it's only through you know, deep contemplation and meditation and therapy that you can let go of those negative experiences and, and instead use them to learn and propel you to the future. But man, that temptation is right yes, there, isn't it? It really is. So what is your theory here? Like, how do you think it works? Honestly, I do think that time travel into the past is forbidden. Uh, I do believe that it, it is inaccessible to us, that there is something special about time that sets it apart and it makes it unique uh, from the dimensions of space where uh, the dimensions of space, you can go left or right, up or down, forward or backward. You can go anywhere you want, but there is something special about time. Uh, on the other hand, we do not understand this. And I believe there is something deep, something fundamental that we are currently missing in our understanding of physics and science in the natural world that would explain why time is so special. I do not know what that answer is, and I would love to find out. So you don't think there's the alternate timelines or, you know, going back like in Back to the Future, going back and changing the outcome? You know, the alternate timeline things, that is a construct of science fiction. Unfortunately, that does not appear in any of our models of time travel or, or alternate realities. Um, it, it appears that the past really is fixed and that if you start opening up changes to the past, then you open up huge gaping wounds in our understanding of causality, of cause and effect. Uh, the, the famous example is the grandfather paradox. If you go back in time and kill your grandparents, then your grandparents aren't around to give birth to your parents, and then they're not around to give birth to you. So how did you exist in the first place? This is from Back to the Future. Exactly what happened. Yeah, exactly. I mean, exactly. I'm trying to simplify it here, Doctor Sutter. I'm trying to make it understandable for people. Okay, so if that's the case, then, and you feel that there's still something unknowable but solid about time, then what did Doctor Hawking think? Then why why would he throw a party about this? Oh, he was uh, trying to answer these exact same kinds of questions, and he was curious about exactly this 
this issue in, in fundamental physics that we are missing something deep about time. And so why not throw an experiment if time travel is possible and our future descendants figure it out and they receive this invitation, then they can show up at the party. The key part of the invitation was he didn't send it out until after he threw the party. Okay, why? And <laughs> Uh, because this way, no one would know about the invitation prior to the actual event. Only people in the future, uh, I believe he threw the party in 2008. So anyone after 2008 would know about the party, but no one before 2008 would know about the party. And this would ensure that there are no cheaters. Uh, you have to travel in time into the past in order to make it to Stephen's party. Okay, so even that right there was like a bit of a trick part of the experiment. Exactly. And that's what made the experiment uh, so clever, was that in order to attend the party, you must travel into the past. Like I said, there's, there's some options here. It could still be possible for time travel into the past to be allowed. Just by the time we figure it out, nobody even knows, uh, remembers Stephen Hawking's name. Like you can imagine thousands of years ago, some Sumerian philosopher throws a time travel party and writes down the invitation on clay tablets. And then no one, no one gets to read those clay tablets because they've been lost to history. So that's one option. The other option is... Maybe time travel is allowed, but it's enormously complicated or energy intensive, and you can maybe send little particles or messages into the past, but not an entire person. You know, maybe there was like a little a flicker of light in the corner uh, at, at Stephen Hawking's party that escaped his notice, and that was a message from our descendants uh, into the past. Or maybe you just can't travel back in time. <laughs> or right? maybe it's the simplest answer. Maybe yeah. it's just the simplest answer on that one. Dr. Sutter, thank you so much for your time. That was fascinating. Oh, thank you so much for having me on. I'll be happy to answer more questions yesterday. <laughs> Good one. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, let's take a look back at what happened over the past year in the United States. I don't, even, I don't know if we can cover all of that in just a few minutes' time, but our Global News Washington correspondent, Reggie Giacchini, is going to give it a try because we still have to catch up on stuff that happened in the past week. Good morning, Reggie. Good morning. Okay, so I know I need. I learned last week I have to be as specific as possible when we're talking about the Donald Trump stories. So the Donald Trump and the main presidential ballot story, what is that one about? So this one uh, is is similar to what we had talked about last time with Donald Trump and the Colorado case in that the state has now moved forward in blocking him uh, from being on the ballot for the upcoming primary uh, in March of 2024. It's it's a decision that's now on pause because there's likely going to be um, an appeal by the Trump team to the courts in Maine and possibly up to the U.S. Supreme Court. But this is now the second time that we've seen the former president uh, blocked from appearing on a primary and it is sparking fierce backlash interestingly enough from both sides of the political aisle in what way well, we have Republicans very clearly saying that this is something that is is undemocratic and this is unfair to Donald Trump. But you have some uh, some Democrats who are coming out, including Democrats from Maine who were on the impeachment committee for Donald Trump uh, to say that this isn't something that the courts should be involved with and that it ultimately should be up to the people of the state to decide whether or not they want Trump to appear on the ballot. Now, big picture here, Simi, it's worth pointing out that this is all likely going to wind up before the Supreme Court, and it all has to do with the primaries. But the question is, 
whatever the Supreme Court does, is it going to be narrow? And then ultimately, when Trump, if Trump is 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 the nominee for the Republican Party, does a new challenge come up to say, look, he's now the the official nominee? Can we try to disqualify him long, you know, after the the primary process is over? Okay, so there's that story. Also, let's talk about what happened with Nikki Haley this week, the Republican presidential candidate. Where, I mean, come on, you, you should have a good answer for a question well, like this. I mean, you should, especially if you're Nikki Haley, who in 2015 was 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 receiving high praise as the Republican governor of South Carolina for championing a move to remove the Confederate flag from the state house in her state. I mean, this was a moment that, again, received bipartisan uh, uh, pushback, but also bipartisan praise. Uh, and then when she's asked the question at a town hall in New Hampshire as to what started the Civil War, her response is is a little bit bananas. I mean, I think the cause of the Civil War was basically how government was going to run, the freedoms and what people could and couldn't do. What do you think the cause of the Civil War was? And then in the year 2023, it's astonishing to me that you answer that question without mentioning the word slavery. What do you want me to say about slavery? No, um, uh, you answered my question. What do you want me to say about slavery? Boy, I cannot imagine that answer going worse for her. I mean, and, and you had other Republicans like Ron DeSantis come out and, and slam the response. Uh, you had the president of the United States put out a tweet to say it was about slavery. And you now have Nikki Haley in cleanup mode to say, yes, of course, this is about slavery. But we're also talking about what it is now. This is this is a big and a bad moment for somebody who has been climbing significantly yes. in the polls and is now second behind Donald Trump in New Hampshire ahead of its primary uh, in January. Uh, quite the self-inflicted wound. Okay, so one of the big stories of the past year had to do with those Chinese spy balloons. Reggie, I understand there's an update on that. Th- there's a couple of updates on this. There is some reporting that suggests that the White House knew about this spy balloon long before that it was across the United States and that there was an attempt by the White House to keep it secret. And in fact, they went to um, one of the, the highest kind of secretive um, intelligence courts to try and, and get information on it, but not release that publicly. The White House is pushing back on that, but there is reporting that they knew about this. There's second reporting here about the spy balloon that it may have actually connected to a U.S. company's, you know, internet uh, system to be able to push back high bits of information back to China. Now, the company is not being named. They're they're saying, look, this didn't happen. It didn't connect to us. But again, it is kind of raising that question here of what did China get when they had this balloon that they still call a weather balloon over the United States? And have any of the gaps that this balloon exposed in the intelligence gathering services in the United States been closed. This could be something that comes back to dog this president uh, as he runs towards the White House again for 2024. Oh boy, so much for us to talk about in 2024. Reggie, thank you and listen, Happy New Year. Thanks and Happy New Year to you as well. This is Mornings with Simi. We are coming to the end now of 2023 officially and what a year it was. In the city of Vancouver, it was certainly a time of change at City Hall and a change of, well, let's say, attitude in some ways from City Council. So what were some of the accomplishments and what can we expect to hear and see in the year ahead? Well, for that, we thought we would ask ABC Councillor Mike Klassen, who joins us now. Now, this has been your first full year of being on City Council. How did you find it? Uh, I get asked that question every day uh and i guess and i give the answer multiple times per day 
I really like what I'm doing right now. I, it's such a privilege and an honor, really, uh, to be able to put in the hours, meet with people in the community, and work with great people to try and move the city forward. So um, it's, I'm fairly unflinching in that response. It's just it's, uh, it's a city that I was born and raised in. Uh, I love the city, and I, I, I want us to be able to kind of move forward. So it, I'm enjoying it. Okay, well, let's talk about the reality check, too, though. Obviously, when you are brought into office, it's different from being outside office and saying you should be able to do X, Y, Z. Was there a reality check for you here, too, on some issues? Oh, absolutely. I mean, um, just from the very beginning when we started looking at our budget numbers, for example, and seeing how many departments have been cut, even sort of basic things like just keeping the streets clean, keeping the boulevards um, mowed and maintained, gardens, uh, you know, when I saw the the fact that we had slashed that budget by about 20% about a decade ago, and you could see it. I mean, everybody used to use the word gritty for me. So Vancouver was looking gritty, and I said, we don't need to be gritty. We, we should look good, as good as our neighbors at least. And so uh, we were able to add that budget, but, of course, it led to – it was measures like that that led to a, a pretty st- stiff tax increase that, you know, we're not super excited about, but – we're working now to make sure that we can bring those costs down and make sure that uh, you know, we focus on that affordability piece for, for Vancouverites. That's part of the thing that gets politicians criticized, though, isn't it? Is that it's easy to say one thing when you're running for election and then you find that reality hits you. So how do you balance that? I think you just have to be honest and level with people. Um, the fact is is that, yeah, you don't, you, you're working in a little bit of a vacuum of information, um, but at the same time, uh, I think people accept the fact that you are... Um, if you're upfront with them and you explain to them what you're trying to do, uh, then they're generally more accepting of, of the measures you need to take. And, and like I say, in the, in the short term, um, you know, things like taxes are, are, are issues that we are um, working on and, and committing to, to lowering. So we had a 3% reduction from last year, and we're hoping to keep that pattern going for the next couple of years. Well, let's talk about the priorities then for the year ahead. For 2024, what do you want to see tackled by the City of Vancouver? Well, obviously, the biggest uh, challenge facing the entire country is housing. And so we've begun to take steps with uh, last year, this um, in 2023, the largest uh, one-time rezoning of the city for missing middle housing. So meaning we could have multiplex housing, uh, four or six units in neighborhoods that have been traditionally sort of single detached housing, uh, maybe with a laneway. Um, but I think we're, as we're moving forward, we have to continue to make sure that it's easy. Um, the, the actual you know, cost to develop things has skyrocketed, um, whether it's mortgage rates, uh, the cost of infrastructure. Fortunately, uh, we're working extremely well with senior levels of government. We're seeing funding that just was recently announced, the Housing Accelerator Fund, which will help us on some of that infrastructure, uh, those pipes and sewers that are needed in neighborhoods uh, where we're going to be adding more density. Um, the policies around more density around SkyTrain stations and rapid transit, I think, is is going to really be a really great incentive for for more housing development. And, and then our three 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 one plan, which effectively is just reduce the times uh, to try and make sure the permits and approvals are happening. Um, so that work has begun, including some new technology that will allow people to do online and get an approval for a laneway house or eventually a detached house or a small. A smaller building, um, and and that's that's the work that's ongoing, and and I think that's why because people want to see more housing get built faster, and that's a, a mantra that we repeat every day. Okay, so what will we notice? What will Vancouver residents and people outside of Vancouver notice in Vancouver in twenty twenty four? 
I think that there, you know, we've been hearing a lot. Public safety was a, a, a big issue during yes. the election campaign. Um, so neighborhoods that have been feeling that pressure, Chinatown, for example. I mean, if you're down in Chinatown walking around today, you can go to some of the really cool uh, bars or even do some shopping there. It's a completely different um, feeling down there now. There's, it's being cleaned regularly. They've been attacking the graffiti. Um, the, the feeling of safety is starting to set in there. And I think we're going to continue to try and work on, on those historic neighborhoods. So we have a, a plan that you're going to start seeing some, some big changes happening uh, in Gastown. Uh, it's a, it's a multi-year plan, but we're going to be starting to pilot more closures to allow, um, have more street activity and sort of, um, street parties there. Uh, we're going to see improvements on the actual infrastructure because, you know, the bricks are looking a little bit tired down there. Um, and there is even a proposal to make a Cordova street, um, uh, two way rather than one way going eastbound to eventually allow um, uh, traffic to be moved right off of Water Street so we can have those closures and not have too much traffic disruption. So I think you're going to see that. I also think in South Vancouver, uh, we're going to be seeing um, some more exciting things. I, I just met yesterday with um, the organizers of a uh, Filipino cultural festival. We have a huge Filipino um, mm-hmm. uh, uh, population in the city. Um, you know, we've had Baisaki for sort of the Punjabi and, and South Asian community. Uh, we've got uh, Lunar New Year celebrations coming up. Uh, so it'll be just really exciting to have um, that cultural festival. Um, and uh, we've also responded to the community. We're, we've been making new investments on a, on a turf field, a uh, splash park, and, and just trying to work with uh, people who in the south side of the city who really felt, I think deservedly, um, the, that they've been under underserved by the yeah. city. So. That is so true. I um I lived in South Vancouver, you know, in my high school years there when I lived in Vancouver as a kid, and it it feels neglected these days. It doesn't feel as attached to the rest of the city. It feels like it's been looked over. Yeah, that's partly historical. I mean, it literally was a different. It was the district to South Vancouver until the late 1920s, and then it was uh, uh, amalgamated into the the whole city. But um, I think you're right. I mean, I grew up in South Van as well and, and uh, in the Clarny area, and, you know, it was kind of a sleepy little area with one little shopping mall. But eventually I think you're going to start to see more energy in, in some of those neighborhoods. I mean, I live off of Fraser Street now, and we know that that's a really kind of a hopping, multicultural yes. part of the city. So, yeah, I, I think uh, uh, South Vancouver piece is really key. And, of course, Marine Gateway, Marpole, there's a new community center that's break, uh, broken ground this year. Um, so a lot of exciting things happening for the South Side, too. And just on the public safety piece of that, do you think Vancouver will feel differently? Will people notice that, feel safer in 2024? You know, I'm going to take uh, sort of the two things that we committed to, which was to hire 100 new police officers, and, uh, and we called it mental health nurses, 100 mental health nurses. Um, the, the police officer, we can sort of check that box. I think we've hired about uh, about. A, 120 or so uh, new officers, and that includes some that have been lost due to retirements or, or just uh, they've left our other forces. So we've been able to kind of rebalance the, the, uh, the force to you know, losses that go back um, as far as 2013, where we were really below the actual number for population numbers. Um, and we've been working closely with Vancouver Coastal Health. I'm actually really excited about this. So they kind of took, and, and let's face it, cities don't generally um, get into the healthcare space. It's, it's, you know, it comes on property, uh, 
property uh, taxpayers, um, and but it was a risk that we decided to take. And now we're up to I think a couple of dozen, and in the and Coastal Health has a a plan to expand that force to over fifty later this year, and that will keep going. And and the great thing that we're hearing from Coastal Health is the Ministry of Health is looking at this very closely. And if it is a if it works, I mean, if the 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 idea that we would have um, you know, either police officers paired in car 87, car 88 style program where they would be in unmarked cars, non-uniformed, uh, just working alongside with a mental health nurse. So in a crisis situation, they can make sure that everybody remains safe. Or some of the social workers that we're expanding on, uh, they're going to be, again, able to help with people who are in distress. I, it's a part of, of the piece that I think had been missing for a long time, mm-hmm. and certainly the pandemic made it a lot worse. So if, if, this thing, if this thing works the way we are, I think we're going to see it, and I think we're going to see more provincial involvement as well. Well, Councillor Klassen, thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure. Uh, Simi, all the best to you and, and, uh, and to all of your listeners for the new year. This is Mornings with Simi. When you think of Disney, what do you think of? Well, probably Mickey Mouse, right? It's an iconic image. And as the company, Disney, marks its 100 years of being around, it also means that some things are going to change. It means that according to the law, some images associated with Disney will enter the public domain as part of copyright law, including an image of Mickey Mouse. What does this mean? How does this change things for any of us who kind of love Disney or maybe love Mickey Mouse? Well, Robert Thompson is with us now, a trustee professor of television, radio and film and founding director of the Blair Center for Television and Popular Culture at Syracuse University. Robert, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. This seems huge, but what does it really mean? Yeah, well, I think uh, yeah, for you and I and for most people, uh, it's not as huge as it seems. And even for Disney, uh, who have been, of course, fighting copyrights for a long, long time, we'll get into that in a second, uh, of all the many things Disney has to worry about right now, and they've got quite a few, I'm not sure Steamboat Willie coming into public domain should be on the top of their uh, lists. But it is a big deal. They've been fighting this for a long time. Uh, this first iteration of Mickey Mouse that looks a lot more like a mouse. Uh, right. Pointy that, nose, that, longer the key, skinny right? tail. Uh, looks more like something you'd find in your kitchen. Um, <laughs> uh, in, the, you know, in the cabinet where it's not supposed to be. Right. But uh, this gets started in 1928. And of course, uh, you've got your uh, copyright that goes for 28 years. Then you get to renew it for 28. So it should have expired in Thanks to Disney's lobbying, they got a 20-year extension um, that brought it to 2004, and then they got another 20-year extension. This, by the way, copyright acts that they uh, uh, get done. The the second one was called the Mickey Mouse Protection Act, uh, uh, vernacularly. Uh, Anyway, that got them to 2024, um, which is January 1st, and now, of course, it's after 95 years going into public domain. But okay. Every change they made to that mouse afterwards, they have recopyrighted, and those get to start the clock all over again. Okay, that's interesting, but that's what we need to remember to tell people here is that this is the original, very first image of Mickey Mouse and Steamboat Willie, which a lot of people, if they looked at it, probably wouldn't recognize. 
Yeah, there you can see proto uh, Mickey in there, and Minnie appears uh, as well. I don't know if she's called that, uh, uh, so it's it's kind of uh, uh, kind of there, but it's not the one, the big, you know, corpulent one we see uh, all the time. Though we see plenty of ripoffs on T-shirts and stuff uh, already of that. This does have something of an impact, and we can see uh, the Winnie, the original Winnie the Pooh images uh, came into public domain a couple of years ago, and no sooner did that happen that we saw that movie, I don't know if you've heard of it, Blood and Honey, that horror yes. movie with Piglet and Tigger and yes. uh, Pooh and all, all the rest of it, which many people were very upset about. Um, so that kind of thing uh, can happen, and every year uh, something goes into, I think Great Gatsby recently went into uh, public domain. Uh, in many ways, this is liberating. It's The stuff can be used by people other, uh, other than who control the licenses, but at the same time, you can mess with it in ways that uh, don't make happy the people that control the licenses, especially when it's a company like Disney, which is still very much intact and still very much looking to squeeze yet more money out of all of the intellectual property they have control over. Right. So this is new ground, though, isn't it, Robert? Because I'm sure when they started the Copyright Act, the government didn't envision companies that were going to be you know, 100 years old and still going strong. No, and I think, uh, well, I, I suppose they could have envisioned that, and that's one of the reasons they limited the copyrights, is that so that you would, after a time, give this uh, back to the public, hence the uh, phrase public domain. I'm sure the original copyright uh, acts didn't have in mind these kind of global behemoths like Disney has become. However, they got to revisit this on, on several different uh, occasions. The first 20-year uh, extension which I think was called the Copyright Act of 1976, goes back to, as the title says, 76. And the uh, second one, the Mickey Mouse Protection Act, uh, was officially called the Copyright Extension Act of 1998. So they've been giving, re-looking at this and giving extensions, but it seems now that at 95 years, uh, the government is not willing to look at extending these kinds of things even further. And this is Steamboat Willie. Uh, the time will come when uh, other iterations, uh, much more modern, will come through. But they do keep tweaking those and recopywriting them, which is one of the ways they keep kicking the can down the street. Right. But then coming up in the next few years would be you know, things like Snow White or the, the Disney Snow White or even the Fantasia Mickey Mouse, right? Right. I mean, at, at yeah, we at some point, all of those things get to be 95 years old. And uh, while you can recopyright changes you make, uh, those from from that period, once they get close to that century mark, they will go into public domain as well. And of course, that's happened with a lot of literature. You notice how books that are over 95 years old, you can get really, really cheap because any publisher can simply print those things, um, uh, uh, those out. And there are public advantages to that. Uh, the, if if people are still buying books 95 years later, they are by definition classics, and they are uh, a bit more accessible to people um, than they were before they were in the public domain. So what do you think this will mean then? Will there be companies that perhaps go, okay, what can we do with this now? 
Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm sure, if, for, for example, um, John Oliver started uh, messing with uh, this before. The public domain doesn't happen until January 1st. Uh, he's been doing stuff with it already, essentially taunting uh, them to, you know, to uh, obviously they're not going to sue him for a couple of weeks ahead of time. But we will see this, and especially because such a big deal has been uh, made of this. Uh, we'll, we'll see things. There's already a... Um, I don't know if it's a game game or a uh, movie uh, called Mouse, which is a big gory thing, which features the very uh, skinny-limbed rodent that we are currently uh, talking about. So we'll see some of that stuff. We've seen it with the Winnie the Pooh thing uh, already, um, but I don't think I don't think the foundation of Disney is resting on Steamboat Willie, or for that matter, even though even Mickey Mouse, which of course is their main uh, main you know character. Um, how many five-year-olds do you know? that are screaming about Mickey Mouse. They're dressing up as Elsa and Anna. They're uh, uh, into, many of them, much more contemporary uh, characters. Mickey Mouse is, of course, sort of the the king of the kingdom. Um, But I don't think, I think Disney needs to worry about its Disney Plus maybe making profits one of these days. It has to worry about succession as who's going to run the place. It has to worry about a string of not-so-big hit movies that they've uh, uh, released. Disney's got a lot of issues to deal with. Um, And copyright is going to become more and more one of those worries. But I don't think Steamboat Willie is the biggest thorn in their side right now. Very true. Robert, thank you so much for telling us about it this morning. Thank you for asking me. This is Mornings with Simi.